Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the ever-resourceful Pisces. I don't know why I said resourceful. That's not very accurate. Um, shall we say the ever-emotionally overwrought Pisces? That's I think, is more accurate. And I'm joined today by my co-host. I'm Aaron. Who is a very textbook Aries. Uh, he doesn't believe in uh, astrology, but we're astrology gays, as you all know, here at Queens of the Bees, so I will insist upon that as our greeting, as always. And we're extremely excited this week to come before you with a very special episode focused on the Golden Girls, um, for two reasons. One, because we're getting ready to do a soft launch of our own Golden Girls podcast. That's the big news from this week's episode, so we thought this would be a good entree to that, a little appetizer, if you will. And also because I'm actually traveling and we didn't have a chance to watch a new movie for this week, so we figured we'd finally do our very much overdue Golden Girls episode. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. And what corner of the world are you visiting on your trip? I am currently in West Virginia, um, where if you know anything about me, you know that's where my family lives, so I'm in the process of visiting them. So that's why we're coming. I'm coming to you from West Virginia. Aaron is coming to you from our regular studios in Salisbury. Well, I guess that's a good uh, cue to get right into it, as it were. So, actually, the, the Golden Girls is a very key show for both Aaron and myself, as it is for a lot of queer people. But, in fact, the moment I realized that Aaron might just be the one was when we were t- texting about something, and he says, why don't you come over here and sit down between the thrice of us? Or betwixt us. And I said, betwixt? <laughs> So, of course, as you'll all recognize, that's from the Golden Girls episode where we meet, our, for the second time, Big Daddy, and then there's a whole big thing. So, anyway, that's the Aaron and TJ, you know, Aaron, how Aaron met TJ kind of story that <laughs> shows how pivotal and how key the Golden Girls was to us as a couple. So, I knew right then that this woman was a keeper. Yep. So, Demonstrates very, very poor judgment on his part, but hey, I benefit from it. That, that is correct. Um, so I want to speak just a little bit about how it's been key for both of us as queer people, because I think that our story is pretty representative of a lot of the show's queer fandom, which is pretty extensive, I would say. Uh, I think that queer men in particular, not exclusively, but are some of the most devout and devoted fans of the show. And so, I mean, for me at least, like, I remember watching it when I was, when it was on the air. I was very young at the time. But even then, I sort of had a grandmother thing. Like, I liked old ladies. And so, (laughs) you know, when it came onto Lifetime throughout the 90s, it was really sort of one of my comfort shows and has always been key in that regard. And I will say that it was kind of refreshing as a young gay person growing up in the late 90s to sort of see the validation that The Golden Girls offers, both in terms of its characters and its storylines, but also in terms of its just general politics and ethos and how queer accepting it can so often be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my experience with the show is a little bit different from TJ's. I'm a little bit older than he is, so I remember watching like the original run of the show. You know, while it was on when I was a little kid, and of course, much of the humor going over my head uh, because I was in elementary school. But uh, of course, being a huge fan of it, and then of course, watching it constantly in reruns. And the thing that was sort of for me with the show that was sort of interesting was how popular the show was amongst other folks my age when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it was The Simpsons and The Golden Girls were the two shows that could get everybody out to the lounge to watch TV and participate and all that kind of stuff. So again, a bunch of you know late teens, early 20-something college students absolutely in love with this show about these four old ladies. Right, yeah. And I mean, I have also experienced recently i should say a resurgence of the fandom of the show like I, I think that you're right to point out like for a long time there wasn't really i mean before the advent of like twitter and, and all that sort of thing you know your connections to the show usually were people that you knew in your circle but now you know we see this enormous fandom there was the, the fan con just this last april which we were unable to attend unfortunately but you know that's one of the things that's kind of nice one of the nice benefits, shall we say, of social media is that it sort of has enabled this re- this uh, far-flung fandom, especially the queer elements of it, to really join up with one another. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to be fair to the internet before social media, there were also, you know, a few of those like forums and communities where you could go and uh, and chat with other folks. There was even something one of the shows had like an extended interview with Mark Sokin, who was the showrunner uh, for the last couple of seasons of the show, and who gave a ton of information to us fans who were diehard into the show. Uh I'm trying to see if I can find like an archive of that now so I can refer to it during this podcast. Uh, but that was one other way that, you know, I as a sort of somewhat nerdy, somewhat techie <laughs> young person uh, sort of participated in some fandom of the show was by going to those forums and communities online before we had Twitter and all that stuff. Mm, right. And I mean, there's also been an explosion of scholarship around the show, particularly like among queer scholars. Um, I know there's an edited volume coming out soon from a couple of my former colleagues in academia. So it's really exciting to witness this resurgence, this renaissance, if you will, of the Golden Girls. And so we're happy to do our little part to contribute to the enormous growth of queer Golden Girls scholarship, because we're both scholars in our own way. Mm-hmm. So, um, we also just want to do a quick shout out to Enough Wicker, who is one of our favorite Golden Girls podcasts out there. So we just, and I, I love the work that they do, and we just need to give a little shout out to them. But, no, but maybe we can I just listen all the time. They're fantastic. Yep, they're my favorite Golden Girls podcast to listen to on a road trip. So let's maybe then just dive right into the meat of the matter, because um, there is a lot in the show to talk about queer wise. Like, I mean, there's it is one of the most rich and thematically complicated shows I think I've ever seen, particularly given that it's a sitcom and and operates within the restrictions of that form, but uses those to so many great ends. So I wanted to start out maybe then by talking about some of the queer characters in the show before we move into the show's more politics and ethos, which I think are equally important and not always completely wedded to the characters per se. So... I would like to start out by talking about one of my favorite queer characters, who of course is Jean, played by Lois Nettleton, who comes in in the second season for a one-episode appearance, where she uh, is Dorothy's college buddy, uh, who then falls in love with Rose, because they're both farm girls and she's still recovering from her loss of her longtime partner. And I, you know, growing up, that was one of the most, my favorite episodes, and it remains so, because I think it's one of those that really sort of embraces the dignity of representing queer people. Like, I love that they chose Lois Nettleton, who has this kind of beauty, this kind of charm, this kind of, you know, wide-eyed innocence that's very similar to Rose's. And I appreciate that they use that to sort of help us see that queer people deserve dignity and respect. And that's one of the things I've always really appreciated about that particular character and that particular storyline. Mm-hmm. And also, in, a, in the casting choice and the way that they sort of create the character, you know, they also just did that thing where, you know, they're like, you know, a lesbian woman is, you know, just like everybody else, you know, it's like Lois Nettleton is, gives a wonderful performance as being sort of just a regular person. Like she just sort of radiates this sort of like normalcy <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. that performance. Right. And I mean, one of the things that I particularly appreciate about that storyline in that episode or in that character is at the end, after, you know, there's been a little bit of comedy and obviously there's the infamous and famous and justly so well, isn't Danny Thomas one? You know, when Blanche and Dorothy and Sophia are all sort of having a conclave about what to do about this arrangement. And then, of course, Blanche mistakes Lebanese for lesbian <laughs> and so forth and so on. It's very funny. But my favorite part of the episode is actually the ending, which is where Dorothy, or sorry, Rose says, you know, I'm not that way, but I'd like to think that if I were, I would be honored and proud that you thought of me that way, which I thought mm-hmm. is a really, like, lovely way of articulating a straight person's gentle rejection of the overtures of a queer person. Like, it could have been handled much more, you know, aggressively or ham-handedly, but because it's Rose, I think it's very touching and sweet and sensitive. Yeah. And and a contrast to how some other shows at the time thinking Designing Women, uh, you know, presented, you know, a similar kind of thing where there's an episode where, you know, Suzanne, one of her friends from her pageant days, you know, comes back into the picture and, you know, comes out as gay. And her initial reaction is very, very different from Rose's. Uh, but you're right. It's because Rose is, she's so sweet and she's so nice that she she would never say or do something that would knowingly hurt someone else. So even in her surprise and in her confusion, it's still just sort of almost instinctive for her to try to figure out how to be gentle with the other person. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I wrote a paper about the Golden Girls because, of course, I did um, back in grad school, and it was a dialogue analysis. And I think this is one of those moments where the writing really dovetails nicely with the performance of you know Betty White's sort of wide-eyed innocence as Rose to sort of help you know a mainstream American culture that you know for whom for many of whom queer people were still just sort of an anomaly you know or something that you heard about but didn't know personally and I think Mm -hmm. that that's what makes this so powerful is that Rose just sees her as a person and even sort of imagines what it would be like to be queer which for Rose you know small town Minnesota farm girl Rose is a pretty big like cognitive leap you know it's a pretty big Mm -hmm. cognitive leap to to get there yep and so I really appreciate I just love that episode. It's one of my favorites. Um, and it gets, it, I think it's one of those that ages well, um, you know, because there are some political aspects of the Golden Girls that may strike 2022 viewers as a bit out of bounds. But I think that this one is not one of those. Yeah. And the, another thing that I think is so cool about this episode is that the way Jean gets introduced to us is, you know, she's an old, you know, college friend of Dorothy's. You know, they've known each other for ages. But, uh, you know, and you know she said she's going to come for a visit and Sophia's like you know basically just comes right out and is like oh she's a lesbian <laughs> which of course you know no one had ever told Sophia that uh but Sophia like she just says a mother no she just sort mm-hmm. of knew that D- Dorothy's you know really good friend was gay uh and didn't have a problem with it you know and it's great that you know for this show they use the oldest character of Sophia to be the one who's just sort of chill with this mm-hmm yeah, and as she says, like, some people prefer men over women. Some people prefer dogs over cats. Personally, I prefer a lesbian over a cat. <laughs> Unless a lesbian sheds, then I don't know. Exactly. And of course, because Sophia has to have her little jokes like that. But I think that it's very interesting for its time that it's the character who's, you know, been around the longest and seen the most is the one who's just sort of like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. Because, again, this is the time before all of the sort of, like, sort of mainstream visibility that we think of today this was before all of that and so for me it always kind of made sense that it would take the character who's just been around the block the most Mm -hmm. you know to come to her own understanding of you know this is fine what it's no big deal that she's a lesbian right and it's also revealing that even blanche is not upset that Jean is a lesbian. She's upset that Jean desires Rose and not <laughs> yes, her. Yes, exactly. And so since you brought that up, we have to go through that moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, you know, of course, it's it's the moment that immediately follows the Isn't Danny Thomas one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where uh, Dorothy, oh, I'm sorry, Blanche finally figures out... Uh, what lesbian means and then the next part of the secret is that uh you know Jean has feelings uh, for Rose or as Blanche says Jean has the hots for Rose (laughs) and of course she flips out and Dorothy's like of course you know I was surprised too but of course the joke is Blanche is upset because Jean's into Rose instead of being into Blanche because of course Blanche has to be the most desirable to everyone all the time Mm -hmm. of course (laughs) Yes, and she's like, yeah, well, I don't, I will never understand what Jean prefers, you know, what my women, yeah, Jean prefers women, but you know, it's just a lovely scene, and it's a peak performance for Rue McClanahan. It is one of her, I think, best and most hilarious moments. Yes, definitely. But speaking of Blanche, I, I think that that's a good segue actually to one of the other most important queer characters who actually comes back twice, which of course is her younger brother Clayton. Um, who, in his first appearance, comes out as gay after a little bit of circuitous plotting, where he, admit, he first he says that he slept with Rose, which of course causes a rift, but then he admits the truth, and Blanche has her own, you know, hang-ups, shall we say. And then in the second episode, he comes and visits with his gay cop lover, soon-to-be husband, Doug, who looks, you know, as you would expect a 1980s gay man to look. And I find those, the two of those episodes to be also remarkably sophisticated, particularly the second. I mean, Sisters of the Bride is arguably... <laughs> it's, very, it's a very funny title, but I can see why it might rub some people the wrong way. Um, but I, I love that episode, second episode in particular because of the way it's written and Blanche's caution and sort of conditional acceptance of Clayton at the end. But we'll get there in a moment. But we can start out with when Clayton first comes to visit and Blanche has to contend with his sexuality. So what did you make of that episode? Of course. And, uh, you know, I liked it. It was one that as a kid, uh, I remember watching it and, you know, thinking, of course, it was a funny episode like all of the other episodes. I didn't love it as much until I got much older and, you know, was watching it again, you know, you know, from the with a more adult perspective on things. 
but in that episode, of course, you know, Clayton shows up. Uh, Blanche is very excited to have her baby brother come visit her. They're, they had a very close relationship growing up. Uh, and she's just really excited for him to to get there. Uh, also because he's, you know, recently, well, not quite so recently, uh, divorced from his now ex-wife. Uh, and Blanche is sort of eager for him to, to move on and, and to meet another woman and to go on with his life that way. Uh, which, of course, is complicated by the fact that he's not particularly into women. Which, of mm-hmm. course, Blanche doesn't know. Uh, and, of course... Like in so many other episodes, the one who um, is, figures this out first is Rose. Again, the sort of sweet, naive, innocent character is the one who's confronted with this because he runs into, uh, she runs into to Clayton while he's supposed to be out on a date with someone that Blanche has fixed him up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Rose runs into him and they talk. And, you know, and he says, you know, he's been wanting to, you know, t- you know tell his big sister this whole time that he's gay, but he's just sort of been afraid to. And, you know, Rose, of course, after, of course, taking a minute to figure out <laughs> what Clayton means when he tries to come out to her, you know, of course, she is kind and accepting and as understanding as she can be, because that's Rose. And she encourages him to tell Blanche the truth. Uh, and very wisely points out, you know, knowing Blanche that, of course, she'll be upset at first, but she'll accept it. She'll get over it and, and move on. <laughs> uh, and so they go back home to the house to tell Blanche the truth about Clayton's identity. But Clayton gets afraid. And instead of saying, you know, I'm gay, he says, you know, well, I'm out. I was with Rose and we talked and we slept together tonight. <laughs> and of course, which shocks everyone, most of all Rose, who's standing there with this look on her face. Again, great kudos to Betty White for this performance. <laughs> she has this look of silent shock. <laughs> right, when Clayton unexpectedly says this right because she's been nodding along with him all the time like mm-hmm. and then she's like oh my god no wait that's not what that was supposed to end exactly and then as TJ pointed out that causes a rift between Blanche and Rose until you know Clayton finally comes out tells the truth that he didn't sleep with Rose that he's actually gay and that he's been keeping it from his sister this whole time right and I mean I love their sort of reconciliation at the bar because it's it's both it's one of those moments that i think the golden girls does so well and you and i've talked about this many times in our private life that it combines in a way that very few other sh- shows do moments of great like importance or sadness with absolute hilarity exactly and i have to like i always do whenever this point comes up i have to give great kudos to the show's creator susan harris uh who's just an absolute genius at combining those things if you are familiar with her first big series on television soap uh was legendary for those moments of real sadness combined with absolute you know you know falling down on the floor laughing (laughs) kind of stuff uh and it's something that she brought that genius to the golden girls and worked that in throughout uh as well yeah, but that episode where, you know, he's struggling to come out, which, you know, as, you know, a gay man who had to do my own coming out to people who were close to me, that's always a, a, a frightening thing to do. And to combine it with such comedy, you know, is, again, is just the genius of this show. Mm-hmm. And I mean, because for those who haven't seen it, I'm sure that anyone who listens to this podcast has probably seen The Golden Girls. Uh, so, you know, Clayton is at a bar. And so Blanche, in the way that straight people often do, assumes it's a gay bar. But then she's hit on by the guys at the bar who we as the audience know are straight because they've been left by their wives in the scene immediately preceding this. And then one of them's like, you know, starts hitting on Blanche. She's like, my God, I converted one. <laughs> and so it's, of course, high, it's absolutely ridiculous. But it's also one of those moments where both Clayton and Blanche are truly honest with one another. And, you know, Blanche sort of has to confront that her brother is actually more like her than she ever suspected. Um, and I mean, again, as, as he points out, you know, when he's saying what they have in common, they're both irresistible to men. Exactly. And I mean, because I do think that, you know, a lot of audiences, I think today, who are more primed to be gay accepting might take issue with Blanche's like reluctance. But I do think this is one of those moments that's really true to her character, uh, which I've really appreciated about the show is that Blanche is one of the most characteristically consistent throughout the show. Like, her responses to things, as frustrating as they are to us as viewers, are very much in keeping with who she is as a person. So, like, Mm -hmm. Blanche has a very strict sense of morality that, that, you know, can seem contradictory because she's a slut. But 
her brother being gay is where she would probably draw the line. She is, after all, a Baptist, as she says repeatedly. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that she would be so conflicted about his identity. Yeah, and also because they're so close and they grew up so close, there's also that feeling of recognizing that, you know, there's something that this big and this important about somebody that you care about that you just didn't know all of these years. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these years where you thought you were sharing this bond, you realize there was something they were holding back. Yep. Yeah, I mean, as people have noted before, like in, in scholarly writings about the closet and how it works is that it really does force those who are the recipient of the coming out to sort of reorient them and their entire sense of who you are as a person because it's just not who they you are not who they thought that they you Mm -hmm. were exactly like they have this wonderful moment where blanche is you know you know trying to sort of reconcile this you know this new for her knowledge about her brother with the memory she has of him when they were still teenagers about this night where they were each out you know you know, with their dates and their respective cars out to park as people did back in those days. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you know, and, you know, pointing out how, you know, the, the windows in the car that he was in got all fogged up and all this kind of stuff when he was out on this date with this girl. And then, you know, she has to point out, or he has to explain to her, you know, that, you know, it was the car that he fogged up the windows that it wasn't anything going on with him and the girl. <laughs> yep. Which, of course, you know, all of this reaches its arguably, like, its apogee in the next episode where he comes in and is engaged. Because I think that, you know, the thing that strikes me about the first episode is that it's kind of unresolved. Because the episode ends with them talking about going to, um, I forget where it is, right off the bat. But then they talk about the, the tight pants of the waiters. And he's like, yes. oh, goody. And Blanche is like, let's go to Emilio's. Like, yes. So there's still a discomfort. Like, she's accepted him sort of but she's still uncomfortable with the idea of him having actual desires as a gay man and that Mm -hmm. really becomes the centerpiece of the next episode where he comes back and is engaged to doug like that's where she like it really puts the pressure on what she can actually accept because she i mean if you if we thought she freaked out when he came out she loses it completely when he reveals that he's engaged to doug Mm -hmm. yeah and again as you already alluded to What I love so much about this, and I'm so glad they got the follow-up episode, is because it presents a fairly realistic way in which a relative might come to terms with someone's sexual identity. It isn't just sort of, oh, I accept you and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there is this sort of, you know, two steps forward, two steps back kind of feeling sometimes um, as people really come to accept this sort of, again, new for them understanding of who you are after you've come out. That, you know, that yeah, of course she can say, well, I accept you. But wait, that means you're going to date? I hadn't thought about that. Wait, mm-hmm. that means you're going to find someone that you want to have in your life? Wait, wait, you're going to want to have a commitment to that person and tell people? Wait, I hadn't thought about all of these things when I said I accept this. Right, because she says something effective like, I don't mind Clayton being homosexual. I just don't like him dating man. <laughs> and then Joyce is like, you really haven't grasped this whole gay thing yet, have you? To which Lance says, well, there must be homosexuals who date women. And then Sophia says, yes. yeah, they're called lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's one of those moments that's absolutely hilarious. But it's really sophisticated. Like, And I think it really crystallizes, you know, how these characters are... how they, Why the Golden Girls is so popular is in part because these characters are real and the kind of conversations they have are genuine and authentic and have an emotional richness to them that is very much true to life. And so I think that Blanche's sort of struggle with Clayton's sexuality is really well done. And I mean, it, I appreciate also the episode gives Clayton the chance to sort of like call her out on it. And I think Monty Markham, who plays Clayton, is really masterful in this role because he's like, what did you mean you, when you said I was OK? You were OK with me being gay? Was it OK so long as I didn't date? So long as I was celibate? Like, that's a really powerful moment. And I think it's really sort of, you know to the show's credit that it gives him that ability to talk back to her and not let her point of view sort of dominate the story. Mm-hmm. And I love that that comes in the follow-up where, you know, it, he presents that pushback in the second episode, whereas in the first episode, you know, he was far more willing to give her sort of space to figure this out. Like when he finally comes out in that first episode, he says, maybe I should just sort of leave you alone for a minute, you know, and give you a chance to sort of think about all of this kind of stuff. Well, by the second episode, he's already done that. He's already mm-hmm. given her that chance. And so this time he's being a bit more assertive and saying, no, you really do need to get this now. Right. And I mean, because 
Blanche really shows her ass in this episode. Like, first there's, like, the outrage when she's, like, you know, well, you've pulled some stunts in your time, Clayton's Hollywood, but this takes the cake! And then, of course, the infamous scene at the banquet when she's, like, when Clayton is trying to juice Doug to, a, you know, one of Blanche's friends, she's like, fire! Fire! Like, has this huge thing, it's like, small fire. And, yeah, you know, for, it, fortunately, it was a small fire. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's very embarrassing, and I think we in the audience are led to be embarrassed for Blanche, because it's so clearly an overreaction, like, mm-hmm. on her part. And so... Yeah. And again, I, to call out the performance of Rue McClanahan there, uh, she's great at sort of embodying that performance in all of its complexity, and including that embarrassment. It's sort of like once she sort of realized what she's done, if you just look at her face, mm-hmm. you can kind of tell that she's like, oh, crap, I've kind of messed up here. Mm-hmm. And like I said, and then, you know, one of the most powerful scenes in the Golden Girls is when Blanche is talking to Sophia in the kitchen after all that has happened and Clayton's getting ready to leave because obviously he's like, fuck this shit, I'm not staying around, you know? And then, you know, she's, she says to Sophia like something to the effect of, I can understand him like wanting to be with this guy, I guess, but why does he want to put a ring on his finger so the whole world will know? And then Sophia's like, why did you get married to George? And she's like, well, we wanted, we loved each other. We wanted to make a commitment. And Sophia's like, that's all Clayton and Doug want to do. Doesn't anybody have that chance? I mean, that's a pretty... Ra- I mean, I think it's easy for us to forget now just how radical an act and a statement that would be coming from an 83, 4, or 5, whatever she is, year old mm-hmm. Sicilian immigrant in the 80s. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. and not even, like, the middle of the 80s, like, the height of Reaganism. It's a moment that still never, mm-hmm. you know, never fails to, like, move me that mm-hmm. Sophia yeah. says that. Well, well, I think by this episode, we're actually into the 90s, I believe. Oh, yeah, you might be right. But still, the point stands. It's still like a very conservative era. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, Sophia then has to sort of take the cake where after all of that, she then proposes to Blanche. <laughs> yes. And then she's like, Blanche, will you marry me? She's like, I'm not going to wait forever. <laughs> and I, yeah, because it's another of those moments where like a moment of great sort of emotional weight um, is met with, you know, <laughs> a very, you know, um, ribald and very funny one and you're right it was 1991 so i apologize for my misstatement that we're now into the bush era the me 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 era but still (laughs) a conservative era nevertheless so then we have what i think also is another sort of centerpiece and why the writing in the show is just so damn good it's just so good because then blanche confronts doug and clayton and you know she has this moment of reconciliation with both of them and i i appreciate first of all that that she has you know where doug is also kind of cold but willing to give her grace and then she's like, I can't say that I accept or like understand what you're doing, but I am going to try to respect your which your desire to do it. And that's, I mean, I always find that to be a really, really great piece of dialogue just because it's so semantically complicated. Like, and the emotions that it's conveying are very complicated. And it's not exactly the sort of closure that we might have expected but i think that's what makes it such a brilliant moment nevertheless because you know she's not really there yet when it comes to accepting but she is trying to put herself in clayton's place in the same way that rose tried to do with gene even though you know they're sort of limited because they're straight women i think that's a really sort of big moment of character growth for blanche yeah and i really like that moment too because it it highlights for me the the importance of of real acceptance and the idea that, you know, for a lot of us, when we say that we accept something or that we're going to do that, we basically say that we agree with it already. Mm -hmm. And what she's saying is that I don't have to get to agreement before I get to acceptance. Mm -hmm. I can accept that this is what you're doing before I even get it enough to where I could say that I, you know, I truly understand it, agree with it, whatever. And for me, that's that's what real acceptance is, where they're just kind of like, it isn't about how I feel. Mm-hmm. It's just that this is what you're doing with your life, so okay. I can accept that. Yep. Yeah, and it's a great moment. So I just love Clayton as a character. I love his storylines. So speaking of acceptance, I want to sort of move to arguably one of my favorite queer characters who is actually not seen on screen, but that's what part of what makes him so queer. And I'm speaking, of course, of Philip Petrillo. Yay! What can we say about Philip Petrillo? Arguably one of the most special characters to appear yes. in the Golden Girls. Um, so if you've watched even a few episodes of the show, you know that Dorothy's youngest brother, sibling, and her young brother, Phil, is a cross-dresser. Not, any, not trans, I would argue, and not gay, because he's married to a woman and seems quite robustly attracted to Big Sally slash Angela. And has several kids. 
Uh, not that that obviously forecloses him being gay, but I get the sense we're supposed to see him as a transvestite, not as a gay man. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, and there's, you know, Phil, of all the characters, sort of refuses to obey the laws of, like, gender normality. And because he doesn't appear on screen, that really gives him the ability to be a very subversive character in a way that we don't always see in sitcoms. Yeah, exactly. Every time we sort of get some sort of explanation of Phil, where we think we might have figured out who this guy is, we get yet another story <laughs> that that complicates our understanding. Right, you know, because he couldn't stay away from those gladiator movies. You know, he has the poodle that he dresses up with. You know, he dies trying on knockoffs at Big Gal's Payless. He's dressed in a teddy at his own funeral. But he's also part, like, what, you know, strikes me especially hilariously of, in this episode, Eptide's Revenge, is where at the, they're at the funeral and the veiled shapely creatures are mourning over the grave and blanche assumes that they're sluts but sally's what are you or sorry angela's like what are you talking about these are the guys from sal's poker game or um, <laughs> phil's poker game so and of course they follow blanche out clearly that they're also straight like and so i really appreciate that this show takes the sort of sitcom convention of the straight the straight man dressing up in drag as a comedy but does something really interesting with it because he doesn't appear so it's mm. sort of negates to a degree that way that that is typically like framed within sitcom and within comedy writ large but because he just never appears it gives it an extra kind of queer charge i think that it would not otherwise have if he had appeared for example in a, a guest episode yeah and it also sort of diffuses i think you know some of the potential legitimate criticism that the show could get about just sort of you know relying on sort of the image of a man in a dress as being sort of inherently funny since they don't actually ever show up that image right. filled in that way you can't accuse them of doing that right it's not like stevie at the you know in the final season who the baseball player blanche dates who ends up dress dressing up in a dress <laughs> So I, I really appreciate the way that that episode really gives us a lot of stuff to chew on, because it's not just about, like, Phil's queerness, although it is really important that Sophia's like, I don't understand why he wanted to dress in women's clothing unless he was queer. And then Blanche says, well, people don't say any queer anymore. They say gay. It's... <laughs> Sophia comes back with, they say a man is gay if he can sing the entire score to Gigi. But a six foot four man who dresses in women's lingerie or whatever, she says, I'm going to have to go with queer. Like, and I have to say, I'm pretty sure that that's like actually like the academic definition of queer now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so like, I think that that's, a, I mean, it's just one of those moments that it seems so flippant and superficial, but it's a really powerful and really like intellectually rich moment, I think. Mm-hmm. And, but for me, at least, I think the takeaway from the Phil funeral episode in particular is the, again, that f- emotional gut punch of the finale where, you know, Sophia says, you know, she's ang- been angry at Angela and herself for all these years for who Phil became. And, you know, she has this emotional heart-to-heart where she finally reveals this. And she says, all my life I wondered what I did, what I said, when was the day I did whatever I did to make him the way he was. And, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a dynamic performance from Estelle Getty, but then, you know, Angela comes back with what he was, Sophia, was a good man. And I, I really take that to heart because I think it's one of those messages that is as relevant today as it was when it came out that you know parents of queer children whatever form that queerness may take whether it's this you know straight up homosexuality whether it's transness whether it's gender non-conforming or whatever that you know shame and distance themselves from their children for that reason will regret it one day and i think that that's mm-hmm. a salutary reminder that this episode still bears with us yep exactly and I mean, it's also just, oh, man, if you can watch that episode without breaking, I could barely get through my my quote just now without crying. It's just, mm-hmm. it's is, just. Is it more moving than season eight's climactic speech and I want to live? It, it is. It is more moving, which, by the way, let's let's use this as a segue then into sort of the, the one-off characters who I think are sort of gay garnish, as it were, to this feast <laughs> of queerness that we've had so far. If you'll pardon the overwrought metaphor. Um there is, of course, the caterer who shows up twice, who has the nervous assistant and a batch of cream puffs both on the verge of collapse, um, who, of course, mm-hmm. utters the infamous line, this is more moving than Susan Hayward's climactic speech in I Want to Live, which, having seen I Want to Live, I gotta say, the climactic speech was not nearly as moving as I anticipated. I was, <laughs> I was misled by the Golden Girls to believe it would be this sort of, like, you know, tour de force. It's okay, it's not bad, but it's not nearly the, the as... The Golden Girls led you astray. It did, it is. I mean, the Golden Girls made me gay, that... 
Maybe that should be the title of this podcast. <laughs> Honey, you can't blame the Golden Girls for that. It certainly didn't help. But, you know, obviously, his character is also played for last and is, you know, stereotypical. But I don't see that as a problem because I don't feel like the Golden Girls is mocking, rendering him up as a figure of, like, vicious mockery. Like, he's just yeah. one of the outlandish characters that always appear in the Golden Girls. Exactly. It's like, you know, it, it's a fairly broad comedy. So, of course, that's kind of how this works. Lots of characters are presented in that sort of exaggerated way. And what I love about that character is every time he shows up, he is so fully himself. He is absolutely unapologetic about who he is. Mm-hmm. And, w- and when he's had enough of other people's guff, he just throws it right back at them. Right. Well, excuse me for living, Anita Bryant. Like, I love that line. It's a really great... I, I, I use that when people are like, you know, could you turn it down a bit? And it's like, well, excuse me for living, Anita Bryant. Like, you know, not that young people today would understand that reference, but... Exactly. Or even just the now, look here, Stretch. <laughs> when Dorothy's sort of refusal to accept that Sophia's getting married is getting in the way of the wedding he's planned. He's there. <laughs> he's got a job to do. Damn it, this wedding's gotta happen. <laughs> Or when, you know, he's trying to, like, t- tell her to, like, easy, tiny steps. We're not Godzilla destroying the city. Like, when he comes back <laughs> later to sort of help do the next wedding that's being planned. So, I mean, it's a, it's one of those brilliant moments. There's a lot of territory there. Um, there is, of course, also Coco, the very short-lived... We hard- Alas, Coco, we hardly knew ye. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who appears in the very first episode as the OK Petunia, as Sophia refers to him. <laughs> you know, and... I understand why he was jettisoned, you know, because the dynamic worked so well with the four women. But, you know, he is also a very kind character um, who I think would have made an interesting addition. He gives me Harvey Firestein vibes a little bit. Um, so it would have been interesting. Interestingly enough, Harvey Firestein was with Sophia, or sorry, Estelle Getty, in the stage production of Torch Song Trilogy, but I digress. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's one of my other favorite characters, Gil Kessler. Ah, um, uh, yes. And I've written about Gail Kessler, and I've spoken about him, but I will wax poetic about him yet again. Um, if you watch the show, you know that he is the k- person running for city councilman in Miami who is accused of having an affair with Blanche, and it causes a whole big f- t- to-do. But it's actually revealed at the end that he has not, in fact, been having an affair with Blanche, but he does have a secret. Namely, that he is a, tr- is a trans man. But he was born Anna Maria Bonaducci, and who was a part-time stenographer, <laughs> but you know has lived presumably the last what twenty years of his life as you know as a as a man. And I actually love Gil Kessler as a character because I feel like the f- object of mockery is not that he's trans, at least not like from my reading. It's just that you know he's been keeping the secret, and of course Sophia has suspected something all along. But she doesn't go the low route. It would have been easy for her, you know, because she's been expressing these misgivings about him from the beginning. But she says, well, of course he's Italian. Look at his, or he, look at his nose. Of course he's Italian. So the joke mm-hmm. is not that he is trans. That's not what she thought was wrong. It's that he was hiding his Italianness. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really... And hey, she, she was right. <laughs> she was right, you know? So I appreciate that episode. I mean, there is obviously the very funny moment where, you know, they're talking about what kind of surgery he had and Sophia or Rose is like, what are they made of? And then, <laughs> and then Dorothy says, silly putty Rose. Like <laughs> it's clear they're all perplexed about this, but they're not, I don't get the sense that they're revolted or repulsed mm-hmm. by, and of course he withdraws from the race, but I don't get the sense that like the show wants us to feel revulsion for him. And yeah. I appreciate that, that it didn't go the low route, but instead just sort of gave us a trans character to sort of live in their life, you know? Yeah. And what I like is that it also didn't, sh- it also didn't make our main characters into some sort of like fantastic sort of heroes of progressivism either. It had them confused, which right. is an understandable reaction for women of their age at this time to be genuinely sort of perplexed by, by what they've just heard and to have questions. But what I love is that they don't confront Gil with those questions. Right. It's when they're back home, just them, and they just kind of wonder these things out loud. I mean, the, I, just as an aside, and we'll talk about this more when we do the, our own Golden Girls podcast, but like the expressions on on Rose's face while she's sort of grappling with this is a masterclass at like physical co- mm-hmm. like physical facial comedy because you get to see her sort of like working through the, 
<laughs> exactly. I can't believe you're talking about it without laughing. It's, it's like you can see each thought forming in her brain. <laughs> do they try them out first? And then Dorothy says, well, sure. You know, like windshield wipers, make sure they work. It's just, it's a brilliant moment. And then last. And I love how, of course, Rose's naivete and her curiosity is, of course, juxtaposed against Dorothy, who was just like, I don't want to be talking about this right now. <laughs> it's just kind of like, it's a lot, it's confusing, and I just kind of don't want to deal right now. Yes, it is as a masterclass. And then, but I, no discussion of the queer characters of this show would be complete without Pat and Kathy. Image consultants. <laughs> consultants, of course. They don't and believe in labels, TJ. They don't believe in labels. And I love that moment because it's in the, one of the episodes of the final season where Dorothy and Blanche have gone on a talk show, on Rose's talk show. <laughs> and of course, it's emblematic of the sort of queer humor in this show, which constantly plays with the possibility that the women are having sex with each other. Like, you know, whether it's Blanche and Rose dirty dancing, whether it's Dorothy taking one tennis lesson, you know, <laughs> whether it's, you know, uh, you know, obviously they sleep together all in the same bed at several points, which is, of course, what leads Rose to suggest that Dorothy and Blanche guest star on the talk show, not realizing, of course, that they're talking about lesbians, that they're lesbian exactly. lovers of Miami. Exactly, because at this point, you know, Rose is working in television as kind of an assistant producer, and they she's had to uh, find guests for this show, and the topic is women who live together and love one another, which, of course, means lesbian or gay <laughs> but rose being <laughs> sweet simple single digit iq rose simple, of course gets confused <laughs> and of course is like well dorothy and blanche live together and love each other so they should be kids on the show and i mean it's uh, it is a brilliant moment which in a, in a, a simple reading would just be that it's homophobic because obviously like it's deflecting the queerness and they end up disavowing it but i actually think that it's highlighting so much about like what conversations are motivating queer studies even today. Like when Pat and Kathy say they don't believe in labels, like that's very of a piece with today's sort of more progressive free for all identitarian politics. But it's also really funny the way that it plays with like butch femme aesthetic. Cause clearly that's what's going on with Blanche and Dorothy. Like they're being read as butch femme. Exactly. Like... <laughs> the little homemaker and then Dorothy takes out the garbage. <laughs> And I mean, it's just, it's a wonderfully put together scene that is obviously very funny, um, but it's also just really queer. Because I mean, I don't think that if you're, if you're not a queer, if you're a straight audience, you're laughing that Blanche and Dorothy are being mistaken for lesbians, obviously. But if you're a queer audience, there's a lot there, even at the time, that reads differently to you and that you're getting the joke that the straights aren't. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's like you know you're you're you know you've got some audiences sort of laughing at the idea that uh, you know uh, Blanche and Dorothy have been mistaken for lesbian, but also just given the specific circumstances in which it occurs, you know they have to decide whether or not to go along with it because Rose's job might be on the line. Right. You know if they if they just come out and and said what would be true and honest and completely understandable, we're not lesbians, so we're not doing the show. The fears Rose might get in trouble at work, might lose her job. So yeah, they're like, I guess we nothing... need to go along with this. And the reason, and her blackmail is that she'll have nothing to do but sit at home and tell St. Olaf stories. Like that's the exactly card. exactly. So I mean, I would have gone along with it too. <laughs> true, I would too. But I mean, I I love everything else about the moment. I love that Pat and Kathy aren't figures of mockery necessarily they're just sort of like two lesbians you know or well mm -hmm. they're image consultants like that exactly remember <laughs> and, I, and I, I love how that whole setup of of course of setting up the we don't believe in labels of course immediately follows when they're introducing the the panelists on the show and they're like you know dorothy a lesbian blanche a lesbian and then pat and kathy image consultants <laughs> Which, of course, has led to infinite fodder on Twitter, because there's a pretty robust Golden Girls fandom on Twitter, you know, sort of, you know, describing themselves as things other than lesbian or gay, like, you know, image consultants or whatever. And, of course, Pat and Kathy are sort of iconic in their own right. And, of course, the highlight of that scene is where Sophia's like, what pain and agony has this lifestyle, like, caused your mother? And, so, and Dorothy's like, well, I don't really know, but I'll be sure to ask her the next time I visit her at the home <laughs> and Dorothy and sorry and Sophie's like no more questions <laughs> so it's a hilarious moment and then of course like the follow-up is really where it gets I think even more interesting because Blanche is really preening because she's gotten all these messages from women 
you know, although she's lost all of her male lovers because they all think she's a lesbian, except for this one douchey guy who comes in and is like, you just haven't been with the right kind of woman. And like, of course, it's played for last because it's such a stupid thing to say. And I think the show wants us to see that that's an absolutely ridiculous point of view and it's also really funny because you know dorothy adopts continues the the charade of the male figure the 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 butch and it's like you just take care of her and then she punches Mm -hmm. him on the shoulder (laughs) yes exactly and i love (laughs) blanche's oh so subtle (laughs) response to the guy when she's talking to dorothy he's like don't you see dorothy i have to try Ah, this It's just, it is extremely well done. And then, of course, if you have seen the sort of extended version that's on the DVD or on streaming now, uh, Kathy, I think it's, Pat or Kathy, I can't remember which one it is, comes to the door, the butch one in that, and it's like, you know, I heard about you and Blanche. And then Dorothy's like, I'm sorry, but it's too soon. (laughs) Which, you know, it's funny, but it's also like, wow, dudes does get around fast in the Miami gay community. Like, Mm -hmm. so I don't know. It's It's a very funny queer it's a very campy episode like i think that that's what i would actually say that it's sort of making queer camp accessible to a general audience in its own way maybe to just sort of segue then into sort of the finale of our very special golden girls episode i wanted to talk a little bit about the politics and ethos of the show because i do think that the golden girls is arguably one of the queerest shows of the 1980s and early 1990s and i think that it's it's an eight queerness even aside from the characters that it introduces that really helps to explain its continuing appeal to queer audiences and i mean i think part of that obviously stems from the powerful bond that exists between the women i mean and this i mean many 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 people have written about chosen family which is clearly like the sort of foundational narrative structure of the show and you know i think that that helps to explain why queer people love it it's also just very funny and queer people love humor the girls themselves are easily rendered up for drag appropriation um and i just think that there's something warm and welcoming about it that just makes you want to spend time with these women and i know that that's not specifically queer but i do think that for queer people for whom those spaces are so rare sometimes it can really be a balm to the soul mm-hmm. yeah and i also think that there's something sort of about you know the importance of sort of 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 same sex bonding and friendship and love that is always going to sort of butt up against notions of queerness because the thing about the four women in the Golden Girls is that they're truly intimate with one another. <clears throat> now, of course, with, you know, Dorothy and Sophia, you have a mother-daughter relationship there that explains it. But, you know, Rose and Blanche are just friends that, you know, Dorothy and Sophia have met later in life. But they meet and they have this sort of instant sort of connection that sort of form that sort of you know ultimately evolves into being truly love for one another and i you know like i said that's always going to sort of bump up against queerness in some way even though of course their relationships are explicitly canonically non-sexual uh they genuinely love each other right and it's you know i mean when i the older i get and the more gay male friends i've always had a problem with gay male friends that's a that's a different podcast um what I enjoy about the Golden Girls is, as you say, they're so intimate with one another. They also share their sexual experiences with each other. They talk about sex, you know, they talk about food. And I mean, as I, you know, as I gather, you know, this queer male friendship around me, like, that's what gay men do, too. Like, there's, and I mean, obviously, I think that's one of the commonalities between, like, straight women and gay men is that there's that, you know, there's that bonding that I think happens where you can really, you can literally talk about pretty much anything. And so I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And I also appreciate the fact that, you know, the Golden Girls was willing to take on, and again, this is something that many commentators have noted at the time and since, you know, weighty issues of concern to the LGBT community, but not exclusively to them. But I'm thinking, of course, of 72 hours where Rose has potentially been exposed to HIV. Now, of course, you know, Designing Women did that too, and it actually had a gay character. But, you know, I, I don't know that that would have been... That's not the kind of show the Golden Girls was, so I, I, it makes sense to me that they would have Rose be that, or they would that ha- have one of their own characters do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting that I always thought, again, comparing, you know, of course, the very famous Designing Women episode, which was before uh, Golden Girls episodes that that brought up AIDS in any sort of way, uh, is that 
we get a complete sort of lack of mentioning of homosexuality in the in the Golden Girls episode, which mm-hmm. I always thought was a little bit interesting. Uh, and even today, when I go back and watch that episode, I still think it's interesting that there's no mention at all, uh, given how open the show was yeah, about gay stuff. Yeah, especially given that we know ways. that, like, you know, Clayton is a thing by this point, I think. So it's, it is, as you say, a little mm-hmm. remarkable that it's there's not even any mention of that either, you know, when Clayton himself appears... You know, it's interesting that Blanche doesn't make that her concern over Clayton's sexuality, which, you know, would have been a concern for straight people in that period Mm -hmm. who had, you know, gay loved ones coming out. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that we sort of missed in those in that earlier conversation about uh, Clayton and Blanche. Uh, is yeah, that's again again another probably deliberate but very obvious omission uh, from the conversation at the time. Because as you point out, I'm like I'm I'm struggling to understand a, a conversation between like a real life Blanche and a real life Clayton right. where AIDS didn't come. I mean, up it came up even when I was concern. in high school, like ten years later. <laughs> So you're right, I think that is a bit of an omission. Um, but I do appreciate the 72 hours. It doesn't have quite the political bite of the of the Designing Women episode. I think that's two reasons. One, because Designing Women is more explicitly political than Golden Girls. Because um, Bloodworth, you know, Susan um, Bloodworth Thompson, right? Lin- Linda, Linda. Like, Linda I'm, combi- I'm, try- I'm, I'm doing an unholy chimera of Susan Harris and Linda Bloodworth Thompson. <laughs> I, I mean, mean they, that would be a brilliant show. I mean, they were two <laughs> great powerhouse <laughs> women writers of the 80s. But anyway, um, I do think that, you know, obviously Design Women is a little more explicitly political. And I also just think that it makes sense that the Golden Girls would just have Rose be the one to embody this. And I mean, she does have that moment where she's like, or sorry, where she's being like, I don't know why I have to do this, Blanche. You're the slut, basically. You're the one who deserves this, not me. I mean, that's the subtext. Uh, and then Blanche is like, excuse me, like, age is not a bad person's disease, Rose. It is not God punishing people for their sins, which is the closest the show comes to sort of touching on the the rhetoric at the time, which obviously was using it to bludgeon the K community to to death, literally. It's also, you know, that episode has even more relevance today with monkeypox. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the monkeypox thing since that, since this is the third week since we started talking about it, but it is something that, you know, when we see that you know the the right sort of using monkeypox as yet another cudgel with which to beat the gay community these lines have i think a lot of power and it's also you know mm-hmm. i enjoy that episode because sophia is the one who panics and has the r cups like oh god you gave me an r cup you know she puts r on all the cups that you know um so that rose might have con- had a contact with which you know for a straight audience i think that that serves two functions one it sort of calls into their you know cause them to account for their own irrational behavior but it also i think is a is a gesture again toward the gay community to be like we sympathize with you we see what's happening and i think the the cast and the writers have mentioned that you know many of their loved ones at the time were contracting aids and hiv and so that's part of the reason they made this episode Mm-hmm. And also that response, it's also a reminder for folks who simply may not remember the error, or maybe weren't thinking about it, is just how little people knew about mm-hmm. how HIV and AIDS were spread and how it took a while for people to really understand that. So you have to remember that in the minds of a lot of people, this is just some random new disease that shows up and is killing people and they don't yeah, know what to do. Exactly. And I mean, it's for these reasons, I think that, you know, Explicit, both explicitly in terms of its subjects and storylines and characters, but also implicitly, just in its sort of general ethos and the entire sort of way of its being in the world, I think the Golden Girls really sort of was a beacon of light in an era that could be quite bleak for queer people, you know, for both gay men who are suffering through the AIDS crisis and government neglect, but also, you know, the lesbian folks who were caring for them, you know, the trans people who were, you know, victimized then as they are now. Like, you know, I can see why... In subsequent generations, there's still a lot of fondness for the Golden Girls. Um, and so I think that there's a lot to be mm-hmm. said f- and why it's still relevant today. Like, that's always this, the sort of question that comes up a lot. It's like, you know, why are shows from 30, almost 40 years ago still relevant? And I think this speaks to why. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems to be a good place to end our general discussion. So bear with us for just a moment and we'll be right back for a, a brief, deep cut. And then we will give you our social media information. 
All right. Well, now comes our one of our favorite segments uh, that we love sharing with you: deep cuts. Um, I'll go first, and then Aaron will share his deep cut. So mine, uh, you know, I spoke earlier about its sort of pivotal role and turning me gay and keeping me that way, shall we say, of the Golden Girls. But this one's a little more personal. Um, so when my grandma was, you know, in her 80s, I think, I used to go down to her trailer because she lives beside my, lived beside my parents and we would watch the Golden Girls together, among other things. But Golden Girls was one of our favorite shows. And although it was, as she called it, sometimes the humor was, and I use her word, ranky, uh, which by which I think she meant risque, but that was her own pithy way of putting it you know it was one of those things that really was key to sort of how we related to each other i mean my grandma and i had a very close relationship and so you know watching the golden girls was always a very fun and deeply emotional experience for me with her and you know now that she's passed away like episodes like where blanche goes to you know her grandmother's her grandmother's mansion and then has to say goodbye you know has a lot more uh, uh, it's a lot more of a gut punch even than it used to be and that's always been an, an episode that really hits me but you know it's one of those things that I know is fairly common in the Golden Girls fandom particularly with queer people is watching this show with their parents or their grandparents I've watched it with both my mom and my grandma and so I just wanted to sort of share that because although my grandma didn't quote unquote know I was queer uh, I put that in very heavy scare quotes I like to think that that's one of those sort of queer moments that we shared was watching the Golden Girls and sort of embracing that experience together. So Aaron, what's your deep cut? And for mine, I sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier when I talked about, uh, you know, watching the show a lot, uh, watching the reruns a lot on uh, Lifetime when I was in college. And one of the memories that I have one night isn't even of, of us watching the show. It was just one night where there were four of us, you know, college dudes. Um, I think I was, it was my senior year and I was probably the oldest one there. I think the other ones were sophomores and juniors. Uh, but you had four of us dudes, you know, 20-ish years old, <laughs> sitting around at midnight eating cheesecake and talking about our lives. <laughs> and then one of them goes like, why are we the Golden Girls? <laughs> and then we end up talking about how influential that show had been on all of us. And, I was, and you know, and we ended up sort of talking about not only just all of those sort of details of our lives and how much we love the show, but the various ways in which we all sort of kind of it, where we all end up on that Kinsey spectrum because <laughs> uh, we were all sort of placed differently uh, on that. And we talked about how sort of the show shaped us so much and our ability to sort of sit down and even have that conversation of us just sitting around and kibitzing around the table <laughs> eating sweets late at night. Uh, how, you know, how we were we were modeling that show without even realizing it at first. We just sort of found ourselves doing it because it was so influential for mm -hmm. us. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I really enjoy that story. And I think it's just, it's very much of a piece with how I hear a lot of people talk about their relationships with the show. Like, before Twitter and all the fandom, like, sort of exploded onto social media, I, you know, I did some research into message boards back when those were a thing. And people, like, before Reddit, like, I guess Reddit might have existed. I didn't know about it back then. You know, and uh, the number of people who speak about, you know, how they understood themselves and their relationships with others mediated through the Golden Girls, it's really striking. And it's, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't other shows like that, but it does seem to me that the emotional investment that people have had, uh, you know, across the, as you said, the, the Kinsey scale in this show is really fascinating. Like there's something really, there's something there. And I haven't quite, you know, in all my years of thinking about the Golden Girls and writing about it and, you know, just, gabbing on about it I, it's it's something intangible i just think that there's something almost magical almost mystical about it really maybe that's just my pisces self like that's just how we think about things is there's just something you know <laughs> there's something supernatural i guess about the golden girls that just mm -hmm. you know is it just transcends time like it's obviously very much of a yeah. of its era it is an 80s and 90s show and, you know, and, and its look and its themes and all that. But there is something about it that just keeps on going. Like, it's really extraordinary that it has aroused this level of passion and fandom that one doesn't always see in a sitcom in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to be the uh, scully to your molder here and, <laughs> and move away from talking about all the supernatural stuff. Just to say how I think this show really sort of highlights 
you know, the importance of sort of a great concept, great storytelling, and great performances, because I think that that goes a long way to explaining the show's continued resonance. Uh, you just, you know, you include a lot of the great elements that make for great TV shows. When you put them all together, uh, like you did in the Golden Girls, you're going to get something that lasts. I still think there's something magical. Yes, I know. You choose to believe. I do choose to believe. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, old TV shows, the X-Files. But I do have one last deep cut that I almost forgot to mention. So this isn't queer per se, but it is kind of like if you want to get a sense of how my family has interacted, like my mom and my late grandmother were very much like Sophia and uncannily like Sophia and Dorothy. Um, my grandmother could be very caustic. She was also a Pisces, but not... To kind of the sort of ice queen kind of Pisces, not like the bubbly and effervescent thing that you are all familiar with by this point. Um, but, you know, it was clear that she loved my mother dearly and trusted her to be the capable one, but she also was the one that she came down the hardest on. And, you know, I think that that is a not uncommon dynamic between mothers and daughters. Um, I'm an only child, so I don't have that problem. And I'm a man, arguably. <laughs> um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to drop that in there, not... It's a bit of a non sequitur, but it just is interesting to me the, as a gay man, just sort of witnessing this dynamic between Dorothy and Sophia and obviously the favorite sister, Gloria, which is very similar to how my grandma was with my mom and my late aunt. So do with that what you will. There is a lot of, like I said, there's a whole bunch more that can be said about the Golden Girls, but I think we'll we'll sort of cut it off there. Um, we would love to, you know, chat a little bit more about the Golden Girls, but we'll save that for the actual podcast whenever we launch it. So we'll be right back and we'll share our social media channels with all of you, by which I mean I will because Aaron doesn't have any. All right. Well, as always, we want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for this very special episode of Queens of the Bees. Aaron and I have been sitting on the Golden Girls. We've been talking about doing it for a long time, and we're very, very happy to have shared these queer reflections on our favorite show with all of you. This seemed like a good time. We are actually recording the day after National Golden Girls Day. Did you know that, Aaron? I did not. Well, I should have asked you this for you. Are you even gay? I I guess that's what I should have done. Because yesterday was, in fact, National Golden Girls Day. Um, Normally, I'm very hostile to this national blop. Well, well, then we should have recorded yesterday, shouldn't we? Uh, I guess you got me there. I was was busy yesterday. (laughs) I had other things to do. Um, Anyway, but by the time this releases, it will have been two days past. But anyway, um, we do want to thank you all for joining us here at Queens of the Bees. And as I said, this is sort of a soft launch, a backdoor pilot, if you will, uh, much like the Empty Nests episode of The Golden Girls. Um, But but better than that episode. uh, When we get to that in in our own podcast, there will be a vigorous discussion because I'm willing to defend that episode more than I think almost any other member of the fandom is willing to do. Uh, not just because it has Rita Moreno in it, but also for other reasons. But we'll get to that. Uh, we haven't decided just when we'll launch or what it will be called, but we are going to be launching our very own Golden Girls podcast. We've been putting, you know, we've been putting our toes in the water of that for a while now, and we figured it's this is the time. You know, when when is a better time than now? So this is your official announcement. You heard it first here on Queens of the Bees that we'll be joining you for yet another podcast. In case you didn't get, in case you weren't tired enough of our voices already. All of which is a long way of getting around sharing our social media channels. <laughs> um, so, Aaron, should I even bother asking where you'll be found on social media? I mean, you I can. I mean, I can, but it's probably a waste of my breath, isn't it? Yeah, it's up for you. You can decide. Where can we yourself. find you on social media, Aaron? <laughs> you can find me at TJ Social Media. Oh, this is what it's like being with a Gen Xer. They just. He doesn't, the, the boy doesn't even have Instagram. It's in, I don't know what to do. Like, I understand not having TikTok, but not having Instagram or not really being on Twitter. Anyway, I'm a little over-caffeinated and over-excited for having talked about the Golden Girls. Anyway, so if you would like to follow us on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TJ West in the number three. You can also find me on Instagram at Thomas West in the number three. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll be launching our official Instagram. I promise. I know I keep promising that. It's kind of my thing at this point. So please stay tuned for that. He, he keeps promising. He keeps promising and promising. Hey, I did keep my promise to make us a weekly podcast, so I feel like that's an accomplishment. Okay? 
True, true. Credit granted. It's a lot of work. I don't mind doing it because we love the podcast. We love it here at Queens of the Bees. We love sharing our queer knowledge and queer love of queer things with all of you. But it is work. So, which brings me to the next subject, which is if you have an extra moment, we would greatly appreciate it if you would rank us wherever you listen to your podcast, particularly Apple, um, which is where I think most people get their podcast. Uh, In case you didn't know, every rating that we get boosts our visibility. And, you know, we're still a queer, well, we are queer, but we're a fledgling little podcast so we're still not quite the viral phenomenon um, that we would like to be so any ratings that you could throw our way would be great also if you could give us a review that would be even better but we do ask that you be gentle um i ask that i don't think aaron would care he takes criticism much better than i do um it hurts my feelings so please don't be mean (laughs) (laughs) but i do take i do take commentary seriously we did have a listener a few weeks ago who commented that the opening music was really loud so i toned it down just so it wouldn't blow out your speakers so if you do have a few moments it only takes a second to log into your apple account give us a rating on on the podcast because like i said that really does help and helps to boost our visibility and we would like to continue growing because we do truly love bringing you queens of the bees so i think that is all for this week i've rambled on quite a lot and i think we'll just draw the line there and say okay that's enough so we once again want to thank you so much for joining us for this very special episode on the golden girls and we'll be back with you next week 